The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. And now I have our scripture reading for this morning. We are in um, our next series, Life Together, in 2 Timothy, and today we're in 2 Timothy 1, 1 through 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thanks, Jordan. Well, um, welcome again. My name is Stacy Croft. If I haven't met you, uh, both in person and online, love to get to know you. I know I'm, I'm exchanging emails with several of you trying to grab some coffee or uh, just a phone call, even if that's uh, whatever suits you and whatever you feel comfortable with. Um, I'd love to get to know you. Uh, and uh, that's one of the things I love about uh, what I get to do is getting to know people and their stories and um, get to share anything. And thank, thankful to Jess for sharing um, some of the realities of um, what we're going to be talking about over the next several weeks, uh, the church, uh, both the uh, joys and struggles, right? I mean, uh, when I was growing up, we just got a dog, by the way. So if I look like I'm tired, I am very tired. Uh, a couple of nights ago, I got about an hour and a half of sleep, um, and uh, but it's all worth it. I was the last brick to fall in my family because I was the only one that ever grew up with a dog, uh, and I knew what it was going to take. And uh, and now this sweet little thing this morning, Cinco is his name. Uh, Cinco, like five, fifth member of our family, Cinco de Mayo. Every day is Cinco de Mayo. Uh, Cinco looks up at me and I'm like, yes, you are worth it every moment. Uh, this sweet little puppy. But when I was growing up, I remember asking for a dog from my parents. And um, I was an only child. I think I've mentioned this to you before. The dog was, uh, um, uh, having a dog was seeming like, I need a sibling, you know? Uh, no offense to you siblings out there. Uh, but I uh, remember asking my parents and they're kind of like, uh, uh. I remember I had a, such a desire. My parents woke up one morning. They come into my room and I'm not there. You kind of look around the house. Is he watching cartoons? No. Oh, I'm nowhere to be found. You know why? Because I woke up really early. I jumped the fence in our backyard and I was wandering through the alleys trying to find some stray dog to bring home. And they thought, we might need to get him a dog. Um, and uh, it was a good idea. I don't recommend that to any children. That would freak, freaked my parents out. And it was so sweet to have my dog um, because I, I remember playing with this sweet creature because I didn't have any siblings and I just, my imagination and playing with Cloud was my dog's name at the time. Just love playing with this dog. Well, you know, it was so interesting when I look back at that, why did I jump a fence? <laughs> my parents recognized it, probably maybe even more than me, but there was a real need for me to look for something, look for something to connect. Look for something to, you know, to, to, to fit a need. And I think it's easy now in our culture when it comes to talking about the church that we can look at it as just what, what are we looking for that's just gonna fit? But the church really didn't begin that way. The church was never, it, it never existed to say, hey, is this marketable for you? Is this something that just fits? 
it, it's something so much that it, it should cause us to leap over fences to say, I know exactly what I'm looking for. And it's not just this type of song or this music or this preacher or these, this kind of location. It's, there's something more to it. There's a deeper need involved. And that's what we're gonna be looking at over the next several weeks. We're gonna look at what the church really means. Some have even made this comment, especially during the last uh, several weeks and months of this COVID time. They've even said, has the church missed its opportunity? Has the church just completely missed its opportunity during this time? And I think there's a lot of ways, you know what? Yeah, it could be said yes. Have we thought about what the church really means, what we really bring in a time of pandemic? I mean, we're all reacting, right, to everything. But I think that's a good question for us to ask. I mean, of all times for us to be doing a series like this, we as pastors gather, cite pastors and talk about what, what do we need to be talking about? We thought, you know what? Nothing more than to look at what is the importance of the local church? And I'm not just gonna talk about Music Row and we're the bet. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying the local body, the church. Because many of you came from other churches or maybe this is the first church you've been a part of. And we're a part of something larger. The church is not gathered because there's just a bunch of places you can stop and shop and find your way. But what is the church really about? One great thinker named Leslie Newbegin who wrote a book called The Gospel in a Pluralistic Society. Great thinker, if you haven't read this um, this book. He says this about the church. How is it possible that the gospel should be credible? That the good news, the gospel, which means good news if you're unfamiliar with Christianity or those kind of terms, um, the gospel means the good news of Jesus. How could it be credible that people should come to believe that the power which has the last word and that the only answer be presented by a man hanging on a cross? I'm suggesting that the only answer, the only hermeneutic, meaning the translation of the gospel is a congregation of men and women who believe it and live by it. How in the world is the good news taken out? How does it make sense? It makes sense through this, through the church. How are we formed? The church was made because of the good news. And many times the church is not in good news in our mind, but we heard a great encouraging testimony from Jess just saying, look, the church is wrapped up with a lot of feelings, a lot of difficulty, but you know what it is? It's a blessing. It's a testimony of God's faithfulness, of the gospel being passed on. So with this series, we're gonna look at the next, this uh, book called A Letter, actually, Second Timothy for the next six weeks. And we're gonna unpack this letter from Paul to Timothy, a young pastor. And what, is, what does that mean? What does, he, what does he want to get across at the importance of the local church? Why does CPC Music Row exist? Why, why are we even here? And so how does that work? Because it was written during Paul's second Roman imprisonment. This was in, considered his last letter he would write. And this is what he wanted to get across to a young pastor named Timothy who was, who was a pastor over... Ephesus before he would die. So we're gonna look at two things from this just short introduction. Two things, you're like, you're gonna really pull that out, aren't you? Two things. First, we're gonna look at the church is deeply rooted. It's deeply rooted. Second, we're gonna look at it's deeply relational. Just two things, deeply rooted and deeply relational. 
You know, when uh, this verse begins, it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the, the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child. Now, it, it seems at the very first verse, very formal. In fact, a, a lot of ink has been spilled just over these first two verses, just because they're saying, why in the world is Paul being so formal? And then in the second verse, he talks about his beloved child. Why, why does he need to set this up? Why, is, why the tone? You know, you, you read a text, you read an email. You know, the fewer the words, the more you're trying to like figure out what the tone is, right? You're trying to figure out what's, uh, why, why did that person put an exclamation point in their text? You know, like you start asking about every little detail in a text or an email when there are fewer words. Well, when you're doing that in the Bible, what you want to do, just to encourage you if you're unfamiliar or maybe you're studying the Bible, is you don't just look at those words, you look at the words around it, right? Like you would in anything else. You read the emails that came before, the text on the thread to help you make sense of the tone, the direction, what this is about. Same here as you look at this and you think about what is this situation here? Why does he begin so formally to somebody he loves so deeply? Paul, an apostle, because the tone of this is about what is being handed down to Timothy, what is being given to him, and not just as a, as a uh, very legal way of doing it, like here, we're just going to give you this, you carry it forward. It's a very beloved thing. It's a very gentle, cherished thing that's being handed down. I don't know if you know the, uh, the guy, uh, Mark Cohn, great singer-songwriter, wrote Walking in Memphis. Remember that old song? Great song. He's written a couple other songs that I really love. One he wrote that um, called Things We've Handed Down. And it's about him, uh, he wrote a song musing on his, uh, right before his first child was born. And uh, it's such a great song. And um, listen, listen to what he talks about. Don't know much about you. Don't know who you are. We've been doing fine without you, but we could only go so far. Don't know why you chose us. Were you watching from above? Is there someone there that knows us? Said we'd give you all our love. Will you laugh just like your mother? Will you sigh like your old man? Will some things skip a generation like I've heard they often can? Are you a poet or a dancer or a devil or a clown or a strange new combination of the things we've handed down? And these things that we have given you, they're not so easily found, but you can thank us later for the things we've handed down. Beautifully, you, should, you gotta hear this song after, uh, after you leave. But it really, what's great about that song is, is it's talking about what is being passed on. Whether they know it or not, what's being handed down. In fact, the word apostle here is where, what that means. Luke uses that word apostle in his gospel to talk about what's handed down, literally. See, an apostle, it sounds like this big, like authoritative word. It was, and Paul was using it that way because what he wanted to communicate was that there's something bigger than even him being passed on to Timothy. That his authority, what it meant to be an apostle, to actually have authority was that he witnessed Jesus himself, him alive and heard his teaching. It literally meant that not just like some sort of, you know, uh, religious thing of tradition being passed, but there was actually events being heralded down. Generationally, that Paul is saying, what I witnessed, what I have in this farewell discourse 
is to hand down to you what has been known to me as meeting Jesus himself. Not just a bunch of teachings, but the events of Jesus' life are being handed down. Guard them. It's a life. See, notice even in Mark Cohn's song, it's not just a bunch of stuff. It's a life being handed down. That's what's actually happening here. The apostleship wasn't just a, a religious manifest. It was a life being handed down. It was being passed on. Literally, that the apostles were described in this way, like a father to a son, he even here. He says, he's getting all of it. The very thing, they were literally the agents, the lawyers that took the oral and visual tradition of what they saw in the life and teachings of Jesus and his life, death, and resurrection and then proclaim that. If you read Acts, the book of Acts, you'll see a lot of this. You'll see a lot of, and Timothy's in there a ton. You'll see a lot of when, when uh, the, the apostles, the followers, the disciples who are apostles go into marketplaces and they go into certain areas. And what do they do when they speak? They don't just start speaking like some strange teaching. They start recalling the events and life and death and resurrection of Jesus in connection to everything that came before and everything that's come since. They start proclaiming that's what an apostle is, the handed down. This farewell discourse is just like a last will and testament for the church. And it's something that's being deeply rooted in what the gospel is, a proclamation of good news over us. Of good news. Just like if you read any of the other parts of the Bible, you'll see that Moses, Joshua, David, and even Jesus provide these departures. They have departure, uh, uh, they have uh, directives, they have bringing in the comfort. And this is for us, how is the church supposed to be? An apostle was a very personal thing, not just a very guarded thing, a very personal thing. And it was life-giving. I mentioned we just got a dog, Cinco, and what has been sweet for me to watch is not just not getting sleep and trying to make up for it, but uh, watching my kids, uh, my boys react to this. And we were so curious what a little puppy would do in the dynamic of our family. Like if you've done this before, uh, no matter whether you, you know, first dog, millionth dog, uh, you have a big family or you just live uh, by yourself, uh, a dog or animal, any sort of living creature in your home really throws everything off, right? It forces you to do, like even the other night, Megan walked in and was, you know, we forget this little thing is there and there's this this moving creature in our house. You know, you kind of have to get used to this non squirrel running through your living room and um, what's been so sweet is to watch both of my boys who I have to constantly say will you shut the back door will you pick up here can you bring the dishes can you you know jump in and just do everything and to begin to not you know like what drives a 10 year old and a 5 year old to pick up doggy poop like What in the world? When they wouldn't even pick up their own clothes off the ground. (laughs) They begin to see something that life-giving that was put into the house. And it changed their dynamic. Look, they didn't pay for the dog. They didn't go drive, you know, hours to get the dog. They didn't do all the work to get the dog in the house. But when the dog was there, when it was passed to them, their responsibility meter, their love meter, their listening meter just turned up because something in the volume of what was life-giving in the home 
just went from a one to a 10. And that's what it really is happening here with Paul to Timothy. What's being handed to Timothy is this, not just this deeply rooted, it's not just this uh, lightly, and that's what we're used to, the light roots of the church, where, oh, the church, we could, there's a church on every corner in Nashville. What, what makes the church deeply rooted? Why has it been around forever? It's not because we decided we need to get together. It's because there's something bigger that's so life-giving that centers us around, that get into the mess of, that we never even would have before because there's something we sing about, something we listen to that has the roots of the church far deeper than our squabbles, our issues, our preferences, whatever it is. It's deeply rooted in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's in that. And, and so much so that this is what is handed. Listen to Philippians 2. This is just a, a little marker of who Timothy is. Who, who is this Timothy? It says this in Philippians 2, 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I, may, I too may be cheered by the news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuine, genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. And I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me and trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. You see, the church has lasted as long as it has and continues to be passed on, not because we're so great at it, but there's something centered around the life-giving truth of Jesus Christ. Notice that. Not in their own interest, but not in those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how a son like a father has served in the gospel. He takes up the mess. It's passed down to a guy that we would never, if you read about Timothy more and more, and we'll talk a little bit more about him, but you would never think it'd be handed down to this guy. Never buddy like this guy. The church is anything but transactional. And when it becomes transactional to us is when we realize, is, is there something good for this? When we lose the understanding that it's transformational, that's what Paul's trying to say. Sending, look, he's not sending a bunch of documents. He's sending Timothy. He's sending a person, a representative that's being handed down the truth to proclaim it. Bringing that news, the good news. And that's what Timothy was. Timothy was in a church, and this is where this letter is situated. He was to be in a church preaching to called what, Ephesus. You know, the letter Ephesians. Uh, maybe you've heard that letter in the Bible. Uh, Ephesus was an incredibly wealthy city in Rome. And to send Timothy into that was a huge deal. Because outside of Rome, Ephesus was probably the most wealthiest city could carry its own. It was a city that really didn't need much. It seemed like it was, everything was going for it. It was a, a worship center. The, the Artemis, uh, Diana, uh, the Greek god Diana was worshiped there and had temples there. It was a city of worship, a city of, you can read about it in Acts uh, later in chapter 17, 18, um, where the city, where, when they come into it and they're supposed, once the gospel, when this gospel, this news of being deeply rooted is, is preached, it totally disrupts 
the worship, the economy, all of it. Because they're like, what is this teaching? What are you bringing in? What's being brought to the city in the city center that, that's deeply rooted, something that's more rooted than even the own economy and other places of worship? Because Diana and those kind of things had nothing in to that worship. And here's the thing I think we need to ask because cities like Ephesus, which can be very similar to our own, the church itself can become much more like a luxury than a necessity. And it is a very easy thing to do, to make the church, and look, this, I know this is a pastor saying this to you, so you'd be like, what are, you, are you trying to sell the church to us? No. It's the same feeling I have too. Same things in me. I have to ask the question, what's the importance of the local church? Because is it a luxury or a necessity? Is it born out of the fact that we just have similar interests, that we like Jesus, that we want to follow him? Or is it more than just temples set up in another city like Ephesus? Is it more than just the wealth that brings us comfort or trying to bring ease and economic uh, <clears throat> you know, uh, ease and, 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 and standard? What changes that? What goes deeper? What's more deeply rooted than what we recognize in our finances, what we recognize in other things that we worship all day long? If it's not the church bringing forth the gospel, the place where it's supposed to be illustrated the most, then what is it? Where is it? Where does it come from? Because it can't just be rooted and deeply rooted, it has to be what? Deeply relational. That's why these two things are together. Look, notice why it moves from Paul, an apostle, deeply rooted teaching to, to Timothy, my beloved child. Why does he send him? He sent. I don't know all of your stories, um, and I don't talk about, my, I haven't gotten to talk about mine as much uh, in terms of how did I come to faith? Uh, my own background of faith is uh, one where my parents uh, separated, divorced when I was young, got involved in a youth group, and I remember <clears throat> going to several youth meetings at a church. My parents were not necessarily super, you know, involved, my, uh, or even, you know, at the time um, in Christianity or even the church. But I remember going and hearing this guy, his name was Garth Jacks. He was a Dallas Cowboy linebacker. Maybe this is why I'm such a huge Cowboy fan. Um, stand up to us, a bunch of middle schoolers, and begin to talk about what real life is. Now, he didn't go into all the depth of things that were un, you know, inappropriate to talk about in his NFL career, but he did talk about the things that we worship, the things that we really long for. And something in that moment, I remember he finishes talking. I don't even remember everything he said. But he finishes talking and there's something in the way that he said it. He said, this is a gospel for you. You can have this. This is yours if you would like it. And I remember even as a sixth grader distinctly thinking, I want that. I want that in my life. Now, look, some of you could say you're a sixth grader. You're an impressionable kid. But what forces us now when we grow, right, the people who are sent when we're now in our mid-40s, like myself, after being years and years, 30 plus years ago, that it's more real. How is the God, is it me going home and having a better quiet time? 
Is it put setting that up? Is it me figuring out how to have new places where I can teach or I can be involved? Or is it having the gospel continually spoken in and out of my life because of the local church? Because it's deeply relational. It's deeply messy, but it's deeply relational. Over the years, what has encouraged me over and over and over of the gospel speaking to me isn't just my personal time with God. It's the people who've come into my life, not just to pray over me, but to just speak the gospel, the good news in ways where I never thought there was good news. And I've been a Christian for years. I've been in ministry for years. Because that's what this is. It's us speaking, singing, sharing the good news that's not ours over us because it's deeply, deeply relational. Listen to Paul picking Timothy, someone who we'd never expect to be in this position. This is who he was. Acts chapter 16, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer but his father was Greek and was not. He was well-spoken of, of by the brothers in Lystra and Iconium. And Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him and to look, and to, I'm sorry, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were at those places. For they all knew that his father was Greek. And as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them uh, for observances, the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in faith and they increased in numbers daily. If you read Timothy's pedigree, this is not somebody to be sent to Ephesus, one of the most powerful, strong, kind of like, I got this kind of cities. You would think you need some incredible voice older experienced person, but Timothy was young. If you read 1 Timothy, the first letter, it's all about encouraging him about his youth. Don't look down on him because he's, he's young. He's mature in Christ. The church is generational. Tim, Timothy was young. And one of the things we need to, to remember in our church, what I love about what God has done is we're a very multi-generational church and not just multi-generational, intergenerational and how are we encouraging one another in our generations? And even not looking down on anybody here because they're young, but because how are we maturing in faith, sending that out? Look, I don't know if you remember this, in the 80s and 90s, early 90s, mid 80s, there were a string of movies that came out, like Breakfast Club, all these movies. You remember all these movies? You know one of the biggest tenets of those kind of movies that came out, some of which, you know, um, I don't know if you've seen them or not, they're old. Uh, they were all in a string of how does the youth have a voice? They were all in a, in a row of, you know what? Those who are younger, those who are high school age or uh, even middle school age have a voice. Their voice is powerful and we need to hear it. And there was a downplaying and actually a pushing down culturally of authoritative figures like principals, like Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Remember that one? Fair, uh, who, who, who was in charge? Ferris. Like he has 
water towers with his name on it, right? Uh, Save Ferris. I mean, the whole city of Chicago revolved around this guy. And everyone who was in power or authority was downplayed or pushed down all for the sake of him being the one in position. Look, our culture even knows the youth is not to be forgotten. Generations are not to be forgotten. Has there been enough, especially if you're a millennial here, are you tired of everybody using you as a verb or as like an adjective on a TV show, millennials? I mean, gosh, why, how about the encouragement of you being a millennial? How about the, all of us leaning in and saying, how, instead of the culture saying, we need to push this authority down to make this voice heard. You know what the gospel does, the church does, is it says you have authority because of what's deeply rooted and deeply relational. We pass down the gospel of truth that says, bring little children to me. That's what Jesus does. He takes voices that would never be heard in an Ephesus and makes them heard not because they're loud or they have a perfect Enneagram number or any of those things, right? It's because they've been given the voice of the good news to proclaim. He was even, I don't know if you noticed this, his mother was Jewish, his father was Greek. He was biracial. I think we can read a lot of times the letters of the New Testament and think like everybody was kind of in the same place, you know? Everybody was kind of culturally the same or racially the same. And that we can kind of like kind of put the Bible even in its own category. Do you realize what's going on here? Paul is sending a biracial pastor to one of the most wealthy, powerful cities that could have cared less. Think about how powerful that is for us right now in this culture and climate. For the church to show that we're not only deeply rooted in something, it goes far beyond us and the walls of this five years that we've existed. as a church which is so great to God's faithfulness, but long before his faithfulness to us in these five years, he was faithful to us thousands of years ago through pastors that went in to cities like this and churches where Timothy was not. He had to be circumcised just for people to actually respect him. He even did these kind of things. Paul did that. So what? That the deeply rooted power of the gospel went in through deep relationships. How are we moving into uncomfortable spaces to bring the life-giving power of the gospel? Is it shaking us to our core again so that we can do that? And his struggles... He had anxiety. In other places, we even read about Timothy having to, Paul encouraging him to have some wine because he had, in, he had an anxious stomach. He had anxiety and emotional issues. And yet the church surrounds him to say, this is the voice that's going to come into this city and speak. But this is the aspect. Why is it so important? Because at the very beginning of the Bible, loneliness, we, we, we've discovered loneliness on a uber level lately, but loneliness has been here forever. The very beginning of the Bible, it talks about where loneliness came from. When sin enters the picture and Adam and Eve decide, mm, we're gonna pull away from God and they isolate from him, they start isolating from each other and this pattern of isolation goes, 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 goes. 
And we know it's true. Why does God bring a group of people together that have nothing in common? And when we find things in common, that's great. But what was our real common language in Jesus? Because we share not just tradition. We don't just share a building. We don't just share time or music or those kind of things. First, we share the one who came to us in relationship. That's what makes our relationships deeply rooted. That you can't have one without the other. They have to be deeply rooted, but deeply relational. And they have to go together. And that's the church. See, our relationship to one another is all under our relationship to Jesus. See, it's not so much that we're jumping the fence trying to find what fits us. The reality of what the good news is for the church is we're a group of individuals of a God who jumped the fence to come get us and bring us together. That's exactly what this table is. This table is what sociologists, philosophers, people for ages have tried to figure out. What, what, what's really going on in the church? This table is the ultimate illustration of that. What other illustration brings us to a table to drink what we consider the body, take, the, take in the body and blood of one who gave himself for us, isolated, lonely individuals. How are we gonna show the good news? Only if we're not just deeply rooted or just deeply re- relational, but we're both. We're deeply rooted in what's been handed down to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're deeply relational because one is deeply relational with us. See, this table, we can't come to this table unless, we can't take this body and blood of Jesus unless we know it's rooted in him. We can't take this just thinking, well, I'm a part of this group, so I need to do this. I'd encourage you not to. I'd encourage you to to think, ponder about what it really means to be inside the walls of the church isn't just to take or sing or give or those kind of things. It's actually to take part in a relationship with one who's been here forever and who you didn't seek to find, but who's hopping the fence to gather you, to know that he sought you out Meet that Jesus before you take this because otherwise this will just be a routine. Because what this table is is a lot more than that. It's a a table that speaks to the the testimony of Jesus himself. And we're about to stand in just a moment and recite a creed, an ancient creed that they created in the fourth century. Fourth century, not 14th, fourth to remind them about what has God done on our behalf. So let's, let's stand together.